Hey everyone, it's Blake. I am going to be out of town for the last week in May and the first week of June. And originally I had these cool interviews lined up to release for you guys while I was out of town on vacation. And I ended up coming down with pneumonia. So I ended up having to reschedule both of those interviews for after I get back from my vacation. So instead I will be playing for you guys two of my favorite old episodes from the vault of half hour interns. So I hope you all enjoy. I've actually seen full-bodied apparitions walking towards me where I've had to stand my ground and think to myself, what am I going to do now? And I kind of clench my fists and brace myself. And I've seen ghosts literally come up to me and look me in the eye from about a foot away just to see what I look like and who I am. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. In today's episode, I interview Adrian Lee, who is a paranormal psychic. And Adrian is like the person that you would want to interview if you wanted to learn about the paranormal. He's written three books about the paranormal. He's actually a historian by trade, so he's really interested in history and like digging into the historical facts behind paranormal activity. And he investigates paranormal activity for a living. So um, he is also the head of the International Paranormal Society, and he hosts a weekly radio show called More Questions Than Answers, where they go over the current happenings in the paranormal world. So he really, really knows what he's talking about when it comes to paranormal activity. Without further ado, here is Paranormal Psychic. Adrian, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, dude, it's going to be a pleasure for me. I cannot wait to learn about this stuff. I've never met anyone in my entire life um, with an interest in the paranormal or that knows what they're doing in the paranormal world. So I, I can't wait to learn more about this. I hope you've set enough time aside for us. There's a lot to get through. <laughs> All right. So let's start there. In order to talk about what you do for a living, we need to just talk about the subject of the paranormal um, because most people, including myself, don't really know anything about the paranormal. So if you can just give us an overview of things in the paranormal, like what are the types of phenomena that are considered paranormal? What is the reason that we think that these phenomena are occurring um, and, and stuff like that? I think to start with, the key is to bear in mind, that I believe, and of course, I've only got my opinion based on my experiences and uh, what I've read and my knowledge, but I think we need to consider the concept that there is an afterlife. So everything we do from this point on is driven by the acceptance that whatever religion we're talking about, there is an afterlife. So what we're accessing is people in spirit. So when you die in the physical realm, there's then a possibility to be able to contact you um, via your spirit. So that's the first thing we'd need to bear in mind. That is then broken down into many different facets. You can have an intelligent haunting where I'm talking to your grandmother and we're having a discussion and a dialogue and she's there in spirit. And I can see what she looks like as a psychic. I can access her. I can talk to her. We can share memories. I also have equipment and I have a team, of course, the International Paranormal Society. And on that team, I have tech experts and we actually have equipment. And some people may have seen this equipment on some of the paranormal TV shows that are very popular. And you actually access the spirits through the equipment as well. Things are going really well. 
when I have a spirit come through to me and I can give you the names, I can give you the details, I can give you the dates. What's then more impressive is if we have audio and equipment that can record her giving me the responses. So you're backing up your psychic skills with the science and the technology. And then to put a bow on that, I will then go to a historical society. I will find this individual. I will find their obituary. I will find newspaper articles documenting their life. And all three come together in, in a very impressive piece of evidence to prove that there's an afterlife. So that's an intelligent haunting. There is a phenomena called a residual haunting. And that's where you might see on one evening of the year or every Friday evening, for example, you may see a ghostly figure walking down a corridor or a whole you know, centurion with a legion of soldiers walking through a basement of an old building. And that tends to be an imprint. That tends to be something that you can imprint into the fabric of time that's repeated almost like a videotape. And you can't interact with that, but that's going to happen at the same time, at the same year, over and over again. And then to add to this, and I'm going to keep this short, you have things like poltergeist activity, which is energy. It can move things around, but isn't necessarily sentient, doesn't necessarily have an intelligence. Um, you can get orbs, you can get energy that's light. And if we want to dig into this further, there's also an acceptance within some um, quarters of the paranormal field that you also have things called elementals. And elementals, and you'll probably laugh at this, but elementals are things like fairies, goblins, ogres, things that are non-human entities that people have interactions with or actually have seen. And again, there's debate on whether these things exist or not. There's a lot there that I whisked through, but that will give you a flavor of things, I guess. Dude, that was awesome, Adrian. That was such a good overview. So uh, a question that I have from in there is, what would be the difference between a psychic and a medium? Uh, it depends on your skills, I guess. There's many, many words out there that begin with Claire. You get Claire Gustance, Claire Ambient, Claire Alien, Clairvoyant. And Claire in Latin means clear. So clairvoyance is clear seeing, for example. So it basically just breaks down into what your skill set is. If you wanted to pin me down as a psychic, I'm about 80% clairvoyant, which means I get given pictures and images. Um, I'm, I'm a very visual person and I get those given to me. And 10%, I guess, is hearing things. Occasionally, I'll hear voices. If a client asks me a very specific question, like, you know, does granddad want me to sell the farm? They might shout no into my ear very loudly, for example. So I do get voices as well. But I also get a, ceiling, uh, a feeling of sensations. If someone perhaps had arthritis or somebody um, had a lung issue, when I'm channeling that spirit, I may start to cough or feel I have trouble with my breathing or my joints might start to seize up. Or if they had a head trauma, for example, I'll start to get a headache. So my skill set can kind of be broken down into those things. But every individual has their own set of skills and what they're good at. And it's solely the difference between what your skills are and what you bring to the table would be the difference. That is incredible. So it, it, this, is, this is a question I wanted to ask later, but I'm just going to ask it now based off the story that you just said. Um, so I think a lot of people would be skeptical and, and maybe point towards the uh, like placebo effect, as it were, or something, that, that somebody has already told you that the person that died has arthritis, so now you might feel those effects. Are there ever times where like nobody tells you anything and then you have to ask the person, oh, like, did this person have arthritis because I just cramped up? Or, you, you know what I'm saying? 
Absolutely. Um, what you will find, if a psychic knows what they're doing at the top of their game, I actually don't want to know anything. If you came to me for a reading, I do not want to know the person you're contacting. I don't want to know their name, their details or anything, because as a clairvoyant, I have to distinguish between what they're giving me and what my brain already knows. So as I'm sat there trying to access that spirit, I'm looking for all the things that that spirit is going to deliver to me in terms of pictures and in terms of images. And I don't want to contaminate that by stuff I already previously know. The best readings I do are for people that I've never met before and I know absolutely no details about them because everything I then get has to be connected to that spirit. Whereas if I bring something to the table, I then have to meditate to try and distinguish between what I am being given and what I already know. So in actuality, the opposite of that is true. I want to know the least amount possible which will make it the most successful reading, if you follow that. That's so cool. Um, so what do we think is the is the reason for occurrence for these things? Uh, does a spirit have to be kind of at unrest? A lot of people like to just think, okay, people pass on and now they're in heaven, so they're not really going to come back and talk to us anymore. So you're saying that we can just voluntarily talk to someone that's in heaven? The first thing is that um, if you look at what heaven actually is, if you go back to the good book, heaven is a place. In fact, let me go to the opposite. Hell. Hell is a place where God isn't. So wherever you don't have God or wherever God doesn't have an embrace with you is hell in effect. And the one thing we know about hell is that your spirit will die. That, that's what happens when you go to hell. Your spirit dies. Heaven, if you read the good book, it says in 46 different places that when you die physically, you have eternal life. So the first thing is that death physically gives you eternal life. And as a side, by the way, when people say to me, you shouldn't talk to the dead, I turn around and say, I'm not talking to the dead. I'm talking to those that have eternal life. Those that are dead are the ones that go to hell if you read the good book. So that's normally a good thing to, to put back at them, I guess. Right. In my experience, when I access dead people um, to do a reading for a client, they've normally created for themselves a kind of what I would describe as a false reality. So if your grandmother had a specific house she really liked living in in the 1950s and she really liked gardening and she had a horse that she liked. She set that up for herself. It's possible that I can go and find that spirit and say, I've got your grandson here. Would you like to come and talk to him? And I access their world and I get glimpses of what they've set up for themselves, almost like Sim City, like you've created your own house and you've created where you want to be. What then happens to a degree is that that individual also wants to look how they want to look. So if you think the best you ever looked and the best time you ever had in your life when you was 18 or when you were 24, you will look like you are 18 or you will look like you're 24. So there's been moments where people have said to me, can you access my grandmother? And grandmother comes through as a sexy 18 year old in a black Chanel pencil dress from the 1940s and big red. <laughs> and I say, well, your grandmother's hot. And they look at me as if they're odd because, you know, they remember as a 98 year old with no teeth and a hip replacement. So heaven, if you like, in my opinion, based on the people I've accessed, is a reality that you can set up for yourself where you're with 
your deceased friends, you're with your deceased relatives, and it tends to be a place that the client recognizes. The client might say, oh, yes, that was grandma's house. I remember that from when I was a kid. And that red Buick that you see was a car they had in the 1960s and this, that, and the other. That tends to be the case. So I've pulled people off of golf golf courses. Uh, they've been fishing in boats. Uh, they've been working on a tractor in a barn. I mean, whatever you enjoy doing, you know, for yourself, I might come and find you, for example, and you might be sat playing the guitar in your apartment or you might be painting, whatever you enjoy doing. So I it's like a heaven on earth type of thing, not like a heaven sitting up in the clouds. No, that's the creation of the Renaissance period. Um, we certainly won't be sitting on clouds. No one's going to be wearing a white dress and no one's going to be having wings, unfortunately. But to answer your question, you can dip in and out. You can come back and check on your grandchildren. You can come back and see who's living in your house. And it's not a one-way trip. In my experience, you can go backwards and forwards. So a lot of the ghosts I come across on investigations, for example, outside of doing work for clients, would be people that were interested in seeing who was in their house now. Um, if you've got an ounce of humanity about you, when you pass, would you not want to see who's now living in your house when you actually built that and lived in it for 50 years? Would you not want to see what your grandchildren are now doing? Would you not want to see how your business is running? And in my experience, there's not a sense that anybody's trapped or anybody, you know, is stuck and, and can't get to heaven, if you want to call it that. It's more of a case of dipping backwards and forwards and dipping in and out to see what's going on. And it doesn't appear, in my opinion and my experiences, to be a one-way trip. Interesting. That's really interesting. So... When did you get into the paranormal exactly? Was there like a specific thing that happened to you in your life that made you get really into this? There was, but I, I bet it's not the story you think it's going to be. My background's in history and I'm a historian. And uh, I had a paranormal group come to me in London many, many years ago. And they said to me, because you're a historian, you have the ability, you have the skills to be able to research the houses that we're going to investigate, to be able to look who owned the house, who had the abstract, where are the deeds, did anything happen in this house, did anything take place? You have all these research skills, all these fabulous tools at your disposal as a historian. Can you come and help us? And what I discovered, I thought this was a great idea and I was happy to run with this because I had some psychic skills that were undeveloped and I thought what a fabulous opportunity. Who wouldn't want to come on board and just see what goes on with a paranormal team? Definitely. Then what you've got to remember is as a historian, I'm dealing constantly with secondary source materials. So when I write a book or I'm doing any historical research, I'm looking at banking details. I'm looking at old newspaper articles. I'm looking at diaries. I'm looking at banking. I'm looking at a collection of materials that are all secondary because we don't have a time machine. We can't go back and ask individuals what it was like in 1850. So I'm collating evidence and I'm putting it together and I'm presenting my opinion of what happened back in the day. That is what a historian does. Isn't it then interesting that if you can access the paranormal, you can actually interview the people that lived in the 1850s. And this then makes that primary source material. I can interview somebody and say, what's your name? Did you used to live here? What's the date? What things happened here? Do you have a family? And I can record all this data and then what happens is I go to a historical society and I do my research and I actually find these people. They actually existed. I find their obituaries. I find their details. So what I'm doing is very unique is that I'm delivering history. 
I'm writing books about the history of the Midwest, and that history has been lost to the knowledge of man. And the only reason we now have it is because the dead have told it to me, and I'm reintroducing it backed up with historical research. So the dead are writing the history that's been forgotten. And of course, I just can't write down what a ghost or a dead person says to me, because I'd be laughed at by every academic. But it really narrows my research. It gives me names to look for. It gives me dates to look for. And when I find them in my secondary source material, I can then present them and I'm introducing history that's been long since forgotten. You mentioned in general, uh, you know, getting laughed at by by other historians and stuff. I, I mean, is that an issue for you that when you bring when you bring when you write articles or when you write books of other historians just kind of not taking it seriously? They not from historians, because I back everything up from three or four sources with secondary source material. So historians can't argue with what I'm writing about because I am writing historical text. Uh, the difference is that that initial information and my guidance in my research has been given to me by the dead people in those buildings. So I am backing it up with evidence. They can't dismiss it because I'm saying, well, that came from this newspaper and this from this document. So a historian can't touch the text in terms of a derision because it, everything's backed up with, with historical evidence. And, and that's what I learned as a historian. I think what you start to get is people dismissing you um, from a religious perspective, but that's because they haven't read the good book properly and they just think there's something in there that should be against that, or they've been told by a pastor, or they've just had this idea that there's a convention that these things shouldn't happen without actually having read the book. So any dissension I get is normally from people that come at me from a religious perspective and would say, well, there's nothing in the Bible about that. It says, you know, that ghosts are demons, for example. And I would turn around and say, well, what about the transfiguration where Jesus specifically takes three of his disciples into the mountains and says to them, watch this. And then he talks to the ghosts of Moses and Elijah and he actually uses the word ghost. So if you're going to use the cliche, what would Jesus do in that just one example alone? And there's many, many hundreds of examples. He's talking to ghosts and he's showing his disciples that it's OK to talk to ghosts. So from a religious perspective, I've been attacked, but they don't have any evidence to back that up. I would then respond by backing that up with three or four pieces of evidence from the Bible where it says that's perfectly acceptable. So my, my, my attackers tend to come from a religious perspective rather than a historical perspective. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, and that completely makes sense because on a historical perspective or historian, it's like they might only disagree with you on an intellectual level or something like that versus on a religious from a religious perspective, you're you're disagreeing with someone's, you know, religious basis with like the foundation of their entire life. That's a that's a difficult issue. Well, you're unhinging their paradigms at that point, and they're not willing to accept that. A psychologist would say that people don't tend to acknowledge things they don't want to accept. So if you acknowledge it, you then have to deal with it. In terms of history, if you go back to Hegelian theory and Hegel, he said that you will write a thesis, and then another historian will come along and write an antithesis, which is the opposite of what you've written. And then someone will come along after you, put the two together and then make a synthesis, another book, and it will continue. So from a historical point of view, looking at Hegelian theory, I would want to write a book that nails down so much 
that I'm taking the other person's arguments away. So an antithesis could never be written. That's always in the back of my mind that it would be impossible to write a book that would go up against mine because I've already taken their arguments away. Do you see what I mean? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. So tell us more about what you actually do. So let's say you get called by somebody to check out something paranormal. Talk to us about the tools. Talk to us about any research you would do ahead of time. Or I guess, like you said earlier, your lack of research and you show up and now what? Well, there's three different types of ways of looking at this. During the course of my week, people will come to me and say, can you give me a psychic reading? I want to contact my husband. I want to contact my uh, grandmother, for example. And on the back of that, I would do no research at all. I would turn up to their house or I would do a reading over Skype or on a cell phone. And I would literally contact their deceased relative and we'd chat for an hour back and forth with me being the person in the middle relaying the information back and forth. If I get called to a property where people say we've got ghosts, we're concerned, they're playing with the kids. You know, little Johnny is saying there's a strange man who comes and plays with me. If you're getting doors slamming lights going on and off, I tend to go into that property again without any historical research. I'll take my team in there. Um, I would take in tech experts. We have a lot of audio and visual equipment. We've got thermal imaging cameras, infrared cameras. We've got the best audio devices. Um, we've got things called spirit boxes. There's a thing called an ovulus. All these things can be researched and looked up. What is, and a, what is a spirit box? A spirit box tends to be a scanner. It's a AM, FM scanner that scans through all the radio stations very quickly. Sometimes it's called a shack hack. Sometimes it's called a spirit box or a ghost box or a Frank's box. It has many different names and it literally creates white noise. So what you're getting through the white noise is a conversation where I can literally interview a dead person for about half an hour. Sometimes they're called a telephone to the dead. And these were experimented with. Edison did a lot of work on this and uh, Edison actually produced his own spirit boxes and was working on this kind of thing as well. So that's a very useful tool in terms of having a conversation with a dead person, a stimulus and response conversation with answers and questions that everybody can hear. Everyone in the room can hear that conversation take place. And a lot of the details I get tend to be backed up by that piece of equipment for my psychic work. Wow. So, interesting. so that would be a case of going into a property. What most homeowners want is a idea of who's there. Um, a lot will jump to the conclusion. Some will say, oh, we've got demons in the house because the light switches are going on and off. The faucet keeps moving. Um, that's not demonic entities. Demonic entities have better things to do in their life than turn the lights on and off in your apartment or your trailer. They have far more important things to do. <laughs> um, if a demonic entity wanted to mess up your life, you know, you would be scratched, attacked. There'd be blood oozing out of the walls. All your family would have illnesses. You'd lose your job. You'd lose your wife. This is how they interact with individuals. Um, if you're turning lights on and off and slamming doors and turning faucets on and off, that's somebody who wants attention and is having trouble getting your attention. So I would suggest that 99% of the time I would go into a property, find out who that individual is via my psychic skills and via the equipment. And it tends to be a person that used to live in the house or it tends to be grandmother who wants the attention of the children to say she's okay and she's safe. And in all of those circumstances, if I can deliver that information and say, look, 
this is your grandmother or this is the guy that lived in the house before you. We can normally come to some sort of arrangement where I say to the spirit, look, it's okay for you to be in this house. They don't mind you being here. You know, we're happy to all live together in one property, but you must not make any noise after 10 o'clock because I've got to work. You can't be playing with the kids because it upsets them. And you can lay down some ground rules. And most of the time, the spirits actually adhere to that. The third thing I would do is go into a historic building. A lot of my books are written about very, very historic buildings like Fort Snelling or the SS William Irving, the big cargo freighter up in Duluth. We're talking um, buildings and properties that are on the National Historical Register. And I would then go into there with a team and I would look to research the history of the building based on the information I was given by the spirits that were there just to further the canon of history in the Midwest. So there's three things that I would do during the course of my week there, I guess. Interesting. For that, for the second thing that you were talking about, going into someone's house to um, interact with the spirits there, are you, when you get a phone call and you go to someone's house, do you feel like you're typically trying to confirm the report, like confirm that there is a spirit in this house? Or do you almost go in thinking like, all right, I'm going to try to debunk the fact that there is a spirit in this house? Like, have you do you ever have people call you and they're just kind of like yanking your chain and trying to get you to come out to their house the answer to that is both actually there are people that like the idea of an international paranormal society coming to their house and their town and they've watched all the shows they've got the box set of ghost adventurers they've seen all the videos and they want you there so there are times when i would do a walkthrough first i would interview the client i would do a walkthrough of their house I would see what they've got going on. There was an example recently where a couple wanted me to investigate their house and they had photographs of what they thought was a spirit. And they said there was a decapitated lady sitting in the passenger seat of their car. And they took a picture outside um, from their bedroom of their car and they showed me the picture. And it was actually a bag of groceries that just looked like a body the way (laughs) it was open. And so you do get that. That is very rare though. I would say... The majority of the times people genuinely um, have something there because it takes a big step, doesn't it, to call in a paranormal investigator and to have a team go through your house of complete strangers. That's kind of the last resort. Do you see what I mean? Oh, yeah, for sure. So it normally it isn't just one event. I normally get called into a building where they say this has happened for five years. We've had this happen, that happen. This happened recently. So it's normally a build up of events that take place over a period of time where they've got to the point where they don't know where to go next. They're at the end of their tether. So if you can understand that the majority of times I get called out, there is actually something there because it's had to take a lot for them to get to that stage. If you see where we are. Yeah, absolutely. When was the first real paranormal experience you had you mentioned how you got into it that that very first time that you went out with that paranormal group when you were still just a regular historian did you yourself have a paranormal experience or was it later on that you had your first paranormal experience my first paranormal experiences were kind of embracing my psychic skills when i was a child you've got to remember that as a brit we we do have an understanding that ghosts and spirits exist i mean we practically invented the idea of of what a ghost should look like with Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, you know, with the white sheet and the chains rattling and so forth. And I think if you ask most Brits in a survey, they would have an understanding that ghosts and spirits exist because it goes back 
thousands of years we do embrace the idea of of stonehenge and spirituality a little bit better perhaps than, than a more kind of um uh than, than america does at the moment perhaps we're, we're perhaps a little bit more secular and are, are willing to believe things outside of what we're told from a religious perspective i, I suspect mm-hmm. but my first real experience came when i was a small child and uh to cut a long story short when i was about three or four years old I actually needed a proper bed because at that point, you know, my parents had bought why I think you call in this country as a crib or a cot. And uh, obviously, you know, that cot has the sides taken off of it. And as you grow older as a small infant, you know, that's your bed. And uh, my great grandmother died and she'd just bought a brand new bed. And I got given that bed because I needed a bed. And obviously they were clearing out all of her furniture and all of her possessions. And what I then saw as a small child was an old lady walking around my bedroom, which was obviously very scary for a small child. And I told my parents about it. And my parents are both scientists. So obviously I'm a continual disappointment to them. And (laughs) My dad said to me, well, if that's your great grandmother, you know, she wouldn't want to hurt you. She wouldn't want to cause you any distress. She loved you. And of course, that's absolutely true. And that's carried with me even today, that the majority of ghosts and spirits I come across are just your grandparents. They're other people's grandparents. They're nice people. We're led to believe that through the media, that everyone in this country and everyone around the world is mean and nasty and horrible. But ultimately, if you fell over on the sidewalk, three or four people would stop and help you. If you broke down by the side of the road in your car, someone would come along and give you a hand. 99% of the population are actually very, very nice. And they're not there to cause me distress. They're not there to hurt me. They just want to communicate their messages. And they're there because they enjoy the building and they enjoy the work that they used to do. So I went and said this to my parents and said, there's an old lady wandering around the room. And then they told me that my great grandmother had actually died in the bed they gave me. It was actually her deathbed. So my very, very first paranormal experience would be seeing my great grandmother wandering around my bedroom as a small child because ultimately they'd given me her deathbed. I cannot believe your parents gave you that bed. That's (laughs) incredible. (laughs) She didn't get much use out of it, to be fair. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, seriously. Um, How about what is the most like major paranormal experience that you've ever had to date? Wow. Um, I've seen people attacked. I've seen people get beaten up and scratched, and I've had to drag them out of properties. Um, I've actually seen full-bodied apparitions walking towards me where I've had to stand my ground and think to myself, what am I going to do now? And I kind of clench my fists and brace myself, and I've seen ghosts literally come up to me and look me in the eye from about a foot away just to see what I look like and who I am. I've seen objects move. This weekend alone, um, just a couple of days ago, on Saturday, I was investigating at the Chase on the Lake Resort, which is a fabulous old haunted hotel up in Walker in the north of Minnesota. And uh, we set up trigger objects around the room that the spirits can engage with, they can throw around. And uh, just a couple of days ago, I saw an object picked up and thrown against a wall. So uh, what you would perhaps describe as poltergeist activity I've never been scared. I've just been concerned. There's never been times where I've screamed and run around. There's just been times where I'm sat there thinking to myself, I'm unhappy with this situation. How do I remove myself from this? Or how do I make this better for me? Um, So if you can see the difference between scared and concerned, um, that's where my line would be. 
but obviously the physicality is the stuff that leaves an impression it's it's the sense of seeing stuff thrown around or moved or seeing individuals you know be attacked or, or be a, a beaten up um, would be where I'd go if you're looking for my most dramatic uh, encounters, I guess. Yeah, I could see why. So stuff like things being picked up and thrown with the poltergeist activity, you mentioned poltergeist being unintelligent energy, I guess. Uh, so like, what creates a poltergeist? With poltergeist activity, you tend to get um, a sense that energy is being taken from the individuals that are living in that house. There's a very, very famous case in Britain called the Enfield Poltergeist from 1977. And poltergeist activity tends to be generated by prepubescent girls. And uh, if someone says we've got stuff moving around, stuff being thrown around, I would ask them if they had any um, young ladies in the house around the ages of sort of 12, 13 and 14. And that normally appears to be the case. So a lot of that energy is normally generated by individuals. There has been a lot of research done on what is called a thought form, whereas if enough people think that a ghost or an entity is in a building, then one will almost be manifested. This is something that comes from Eastern Asian culture. Um, I think they call it a talpa uh, in Tibet. But, for example, um, there's a building in London called the London Dungeons, and it's a tourist attraction. And they have mannequins and they show the history of torture. Yet all of the torture equipment in there has been manufactured. There's nothing in there from the medieval period or there's nothing in there that actually did torture anybody. And there's obviously just wax mannequins. But so many millions of tourists go there every year and they go there knowing they're going to be scared. They know they go there knowing that stuff's going to happen to them because actors jump out and they scare them. They have actually created a lot of negativity and created a lot of energy there. And I've done investigations and the building that it's in used to be a wine cellar. There was nothing else happened there. There was no deaths. There was no destruction. There was no torture. There was nothing of any suicide. There's no reason for this place to be haunted other than the fact that people are going there with that idea and that impression and then leaving that behind and almost creating stuff. So if we're talking solely about a poltergeist, you could argue, and it's been written about, that the individuals in that property are creating that energy and creating those things to happen. Wow, so it's just like the law of attraction to create a poltergeist. That's a good way of putting it. I'll go with that, absolutely. How interesting. Um, so what, at what age did you, like, do, do I guess, is there an age for most people that they start to realize that they're more sensitive um, and, you know, might have some psychic tendencies? I don't think there is. It's not a race. It's not a case of who gets there. <laughs> I think um, to start with, girls develop quicker than men anyway. So I would suggest to you that as a generalization, most girls, most women tend to realize they have sensitivities long before uh, a man would, for example. But um, I did a psychic development class um, at the weekend as well. And there were people there that were in their 50s and 60s that I spent a weekend with them developing their psychic skills. And by the end of that weekend, they were getting a lot of information come through that was correct um, from the spirit world. So it's like anything. There's a sense of technique, a sense of process where you can actually learn these skills. If I said to you, Blake, let's go and play golf for a year and we'll play golf every day for the next year. In a year's time, we would both be better at golf. There is a sense that if you practice, if you 
tune yourself in, if you change your design for life, you will become more psychic. I think from my own personal perspective, I didn't have, um, my parents are both scientists and we grew up in a very kind of working class, East London, matter of fact kind of society. And I guess it wasn't until I went to university and met more eclectic people and, and a bigger range of people that I started to find out that I'd repressed a lot of my psychic skills. But if I sit here now and go through a list of things that happened to you in your life, people say to me, I'm not psychic. But, you know, you yourself, Blake, have a think about this yourself. People will say to me, there's no such thing as being psychic. I'm not psychic. Well, how many times have you thought of somebody and seconds later your phone has rang and it's the person you thought of? How many times have you had a sense of foreboding and then realized an hour later that a loved one was involved in an accident or has been taken to hospital or has passed, for example? How many times have you walked into a house and just got as far as the front path or the hallway and suddenly realized that's the house for you, you have to buy it? And you've had that instinctual feeling or the opposite. You go to a house and before you've even entered, you think, no, this is the house I don't want to buy. If we spent an hour going through these lists, I bet every single person, including yourself and listening to this show, would say, yes, all those things have happened to me. Well, why isn't that psychic? Why is that not a psychic experience? Where did you get that information from? Do you see where I am? Oh, absolutely. Adrian, what are what are some of the like most common misconceptions that you see that people have about the paranormal and psychics? Um, everything isn't a demon. Demons are very, very rare. I've probably seen about two or three in my entire life of going to the most haunted buildings all over the world. So just because your lights are going on and off, just because your door's slamming does not mean you have a demon. That's the first thing. So I would suggest, first and foremost, um, people want to jump on the idea of demonic entities. They have far better things to do. And there's only a limited number. If you go to Daniel, it says that tens of tens of thousands of angels were created. So we have a very specific number there. If one third of those angels then became fallen and then became demonic, you're probably only working with about 33,000 demonic entities. Throughout the history of mankind, a large percentage of them would have been banished. And so they're not going to be messing around with you in your little town in the Midwest, messing around with your lights. They're going to be in war-torn areas. They're going to be in Liberia with the Ebola outbreak. They're going to be causing death and destruction on the battlefield and in the Far East. So the first thing, I guess, would be that not to jump to the conclusion that everything is biblically evil, because ultimately it isn't. That's a very, very small percentage of anything I've ever come across. And in your average life, you will never, ever come across anything like that, I would suggest. I think the other thing is just a fear. You know, they're scared and there's nothing to be scared of. It's you and me, but we're dead. That's the sole difference between them and us. <laughs> As I said earlier, they're very friendly. They will talk to me. I never have an issue. What you have to bear in mind is that if you're an idiot and you're aggressive and you're an abuser when you're alive, you're going to be an abuser when you're dead. So the problems I have with being attacked and with perhaps more aggressive spirits is that they were actually like that when they were alive. And you have to remember that a lot of the buildings I investigate and a lot of the towns I investigate um, were founded and came about in the Wild West era. So already they have an issue with women, for example. I went into one building where I got um, sworn at, and I won't say what it said 
um, on air, but I got sworn at quite particularly badly just on the back of the fact that I was British. And when that spirit was alive, I was actually the enemy. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So those things need to be born in mind, I guess. Um, So to answer your question, not everything is demonic. And 99% of the ghosts and spirits are actually very friendly and very nice people. And if stuff is happening in your house, they just want your attention. And I would say, okay, you've got my attention. Who are you? What's your name? What, What would you like? And open yourself up to the possibility of getting that message. Yeah, that makes sense. It's funny. It's funny. People seem to um, to really soften up and become more relaxed and happy as they retire and get older. You know, so it makes sense that you would get nice, relaxed, happy people that are dead. Absolutely. As I said, most people on this planet are very nice people. I've traveled all over the world and I can only count on the fingers of one hand whenever I've had any trouble as a foreigner if you roll up in a foreign country and you're trying to speak the language and you're trying to eat the food people love that they'll talk to you they'll come and engage with you and they'll want to know about you and uh, ultimately they want you to go away thinking that that country is a fabulous country and all the people are very nice there they have the weight of expectation of their nation on their shoulders don't they in the same way that as a Brit I want to come across to an American audience as being very polite, very intelligent, very uh, interested and interesting. Because, you know, if I come across as being an ass, people will then say all Brits come across like that. Do you see what I mean? There's an expectation of you behave in the way you expect the other person wants you to behave, to quote a bit of Freud there, I guess. Yeah. Adrian, you mentioned being able to do some of this over Skype or phone. Like, how how is that possible? I, I I would imagine that you would have to be in the same room as the family member of the person that that you were trying to connect with. That's a very good question. But what you're pressing onto that is the concept of geography. You're thinking in the physical realm now. And there's no such thing as geography when you've passed and you're in spirit. You can think where you want to go and you will be there. My grandmother has visited me several times in spirit whilst I've been living in America. Yet in her lifetime, she never came to America. There's no sense of geography in the spirit world. You can go wherever you want. So if I was accessing your relatives, for example, I would get them to come to me now and we could have the conversation. But the spirit would be with me now in Minnesota Um, while I'm having that discussion with you. So the element of geography is removed from that equation. It's not something that you would have to deal with. Interesting. Are you ever able to not get a hold of a deceased relative? And then do you just have to tell the people, sorry, they're just not coming forward? That does happen occasionally. It's very rare, maybe two or three times I I think that's happened. Um, What you need to bear in mind is people will come to me because they want to make contact with that person. And so if you book an appointment with me, the intention has already been put out there two weeks in advance that you're going to access your grandmother. And it's possible that grandmother can come and talk to me in the two weeks leading up to that because she's enthusiastic. She wants to get the information across. And you have to remember that the dead person wants to prove that they're there as much as I do, of course. So I can have a lot of messages and a lot of conversations with the deceased before that appointment even comes along, to be honest. Um, But on the occasions where I've not been able to contact individuals, it's because the spirit didn't want to talk to them. It's not because I didn't access the spirit. It's because the spirit is standing there and saying, we had an argument before I died and I haven't spoken to them for 10 years or whatever. I don't want to talk to them. 
So I have to say to the individual, look, I've got your deceased relative here, but they're telling me they don't want to talk to you. And they would say, yes, that, that's what happened. We had an argument. I was hoping in spirit that perhaps he'd want to engage with me and they back up um, what's being said. So the times when I've not been able to get anything come through is because the actual spirit themselves didn't want to engage with that individual. Every other time I've had them come through because they want to meet up with their loved ones. You've got to remember that when someone dies, you're grieving for one person. You're grieving for that individual that died. The person that died is grieving for everybody. It's multiplied by a hundred. They miss everyone. You only miss one person. So that fracture and that sever is very, very, um, it's, it's more um, of a problem for the person in spirit than it is for the person in the physical realm. So they would want to come through. They would want to have that contact because it's multiplied for them. Wow. Great point. And man, I can't imagine having a spirit not want to talk to me. <laughs> that would be so it's, awful. It's terrible that they've taken that with them, even in death, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, Adrian, let's give people a couple of pieces of advice. So, for one, if after this interview, people are still a little bit skeptical, but they're willing to try to look at some sort of quote-unquote proof of this, what are some like books or YouTube clips or obviously your own books, um, things that you think would really kind of push people over the edge to, to seeing that this is a real thing? There are a lot of good books out there. I would avoid, first and foremost, all of the TV stuff. Because they're trying to make entertainment, they're trying to make shows. What you're watching on the TV isn't what I do. Um, outside of that, I, you need to educate yourself. You need to read books. There are lots of great books out there. Hans Holzer is the father of all paranormal investigating. So if you're interested in ghosts, what they are, what they do, if you go back to the original text written 30, 40 years ago, Hans Holzer would be a fabulous person to access there's a lady that lives in Minneapolis that I'm good friends with called Echo Bodine. And she writes some excellent books about how to access spirits and what they are. From your own individual perspective, if you want to access somebody in your house, don't be afraid. Don't be concerned. Just have a moment of quiet where you say to the house, where you say to the space, look, I know you're here. You're trying to get my attention. I understand that. You've got it. I'm here. I'm listening. Um, over the course of the next couple of weeks, can you leave some sort of uh, message for me? Is it possible that you could leave a penny on the floor or a feather or you could do something that I would know is very specifically you and not just the movement of the house or a coincidence and just open up to the idea of having a dialogue where you could perhaps leave things for them to interact with. There's no fear to be had. They're not mean. They're not nasty. If they wanted to hurt you, trust me, they will do that. If all they're doing is leaving feathers or turning lights on and off. That's completely benign. That doesn't impact upon your life or your physicality in any way, shape or form. And I think it's a case of reading. The, the best I can offer outside of going to my websites or reading my books is to just read around the subject. Go to the library. If you're looking to find a psychic, you know, try and look for people that have had readings with them before and, and work towards those people that you trust, I guess, in terms of your initial responses to them. Hmm. Adrian, do you have any um, like video or audio clips online that people can, like you mentioned the spirit box um, capturing audio and stuff like that. Are there any like links online to any of that stuff? I do have a lot of stuff out there, actually. Um, I did a TV show pilot some years ago. If you type in paranormal and Adrian Lee, 
Um, there's lots of stuff on YouTube. Obviously, I have a weekly radio show called More Questions Than Answers, which goes out five o'clock central time um, on Dark Matter Digital Radio Network on a Friday. And uh, we discuss the news of the week and the paranormal. And I play audio clips on there regularly. Mm. We have stuff on YouTube for sure. There'll be lots of stuff out there. If you uh, type in my name and paranormal or ghost or, for example, the International Paranormal Society, I have several websites that unashamedly I'm about to plug. Um, if you go to adrianleepsychic.com, um, you can find links to all of my books, all of my radio shows, uh, if you wish to get readings. I'm also a healer. We haven't covered healing um, in this conversation greatly, other than the crystals, I guess. Um, and if people go to intparanormal.net, that's int, short for international, intparanormal.net, they will find my team and there'll be lots of details on there. There's links to every expo. Every weekend I'm doing events, I'm doing ghost hunts. People can come along. Um, we go around the Midwest and invite people. We do big events where we perhaps do a lecture and then we investigate the property and people can come along to that. So we are looking to educate. We are looking to present to people what we do and maybe peel back some of those layers. Awesome. I will definitely put links to all that stuff on the show notes on the half hour intern site. So if anyone couldn't write any of that stuff down, just um, head on over to the half hour intern site and the links will be right there. Um, yeah. The last, the last question I was going to ask you is if you can give us ways for people to help, help them tap into and experience the paranormal, but you basically already did in terms of um, just kind of be open to it and ask for it. Well, let, let me give you one piece of advice. If someone says to me, what's the best way for me to be psychic? I would say to them, learn to meditate. Because we said an hour ago that the best thing to do is to differentiate what your mind is generating on its own and what you're being given. And I think uh, in Buddhist culture, they say that meditating is getting the monkey to sit still on one branch when normally the monkey jumps from branch to branch. If you learn to meditate and you're successful at meditation, that opens up so many possibilities for you to be psychic and sensitive. And I would also add to that, look at your design for life. You know, if you're looking introspectively at what your body's picking up and all the small signals and all the small signs that you're looking to get from the other side, if you're smoking, if you're drinking, if you're eating fast food, if you're sat on the couch every evening eating Doritos, watching NASCAR, a, a whole herd of ghost buffalo could run through your lounge and you would not even see them. <laughs> you're, you're designed for life. I'm not saying don't I'm not saying, you know, be a saint. I'm just saying that everything in moderation, like the Bible suggests, and you know, you can't fill your body full of terrible things and then wonder why you're not psychic or you're not picking up very sensitive changes in temperatures or things you're being given. So meditation and design for life would be my two pieces of advice. Wow, great advice and not a direction I would have thought you were going to go in. That is awesome. Great, great advice. Um, Adrian, this has been so interesting. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. That's very kind of you. I, I enjoy talking and uh, educating people. And if that helps, then obviously we're doing our job. If people leave with more than they arrive with, then we've done a good job, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's the point of this show. So it's perfect. Thanks, Adrian. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey, everyone. It's Blake. Hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I wonder how I could help Blake out. First of all, you are probably the nicest person in the entire world. Secondly, all you have to do is just tell a friend about the show. I would really appreciate it. If you're sitting there and thinking, man, my job is really interesting, or man, I do this totally badass hobby. I should totally be on this show. 
then you totally should be on the show. Just reach out to me on halfhourintern.com, my website. You can email me through there. And uh, if there is another job or hobby that you don't do, but you just want to hear about it, you can submit any sort of idea through the Submit Your Ideas link on the page. Thanks again for listening. Take care.